I was making a trip to the East Coast, and I was driving back, and I was coming through Iowa, and I stopped at a motel in Iowa City called the Sunset Motel. And I noticed out in front of the office there was a stump, and it was huge. It was four foot in diameter, and it, I could tell right away that it, that it was maple, and I could tell right away that it was heavily figured, and I could tell that it was this bubbly figure that I love in silver maple. And said, wow, I'm glad I wasn't here when that came out, or I'd be spending the next few days in uh, Iowa City. And I went back to my room, and there was the tree. You know, it had just been cut down. And I said, oh, boy. Welcome to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Hi, I'm Joe McHugh, and I have made my living as a storyteller and fiddler for nigh on to 40 years. In fact, I've owned and played many violins and bows in that time, and each has been a faithful companion and brought me much pleasure and often new friendships. And yet I realized some time ago that I knew surprisingly little about the violin or its siblings, the viola, cello, and bass. And then there are the cousins, such as the viola de amore and the Norwegian hardanger fiddle. So I asked my wife, Paula, who is also a musician, to set out with me on a grand adventure to learn as much as we could about these remarkable and seductive instruments. And what better way to do that than to interview people who are the most knowledgeable? To that end, we have traveled throughout the United States and visited countries in Europe where we talked with gifted musicians who play a variety of musical styles, as well as those who make and repair these wonderful instruments, who sell and collect them, who climb high up into the mountains to find the perfect tone wood, who experiment with metals to produce the best strings, who insure these instruments against damage and loss, and who get them back when they are stolen. We also talked with composers and conductors, recording engineers and museum curators. And given the hurried and often distracted pace of modern life, we set ourselves a simple goal, to offer to those who know what they're talking about the luxury of time to talk about what they know. And here's the good news. We are now making many of these conversations available through an ongoing series of podcasts. Furthermore, our entire archive of recorded interviews will become part of the permanent collection of violin-related materials at the Smithsonian Institution National Museum of American History for future generations to enjoy and learn from. This first episode of the Rosin the Bow podcast series is a sampler of stories culled from our extensive archive of longer interviews that will be featured in upcoming podcasts. So give it a listen. Whether or not you have a direct connection with violins, I believe you will find the journey both entertaining and surprising, as all good journeys must be. Elmer Olivara is a celebrated violinist who in 1978 won first prize at the Tchaikovsky Competition in Moscow, the first Westerner to win the coveted competition. Here he tells a story about a very special violin he attempted to buy at auction. I was lent various good instruments to play on at various points in, in, in my lifetime. The first time was when I was in school at the Manhattan School of Music, and the school had a collection of instruments, and I played on one of their instruments that they loaned to me. It was a wonderful violin. It sounded great. And then 
At various points in time, I was loaned other great instruments by private collectors, etc. When I went to Tchaikovsky competition, I was lent a very wonderful Stradivari violin to play on. And when I came back, I was loaned another wonderful Stradivari to play on. And by that time, I had collected instruments and made my way up to the point where I had several good instruments. And having come back from winning the Tchaikovsky competition, I was able to buy my first instrument, which was a Strad. My first great instrument. I owned a Guadagnini before that and uh, several other violins, a wonderful Fagnola violin, etc., and a Testori, which was also a wonderful instrument. But the Strad was the first real concert-level instrument that I owned. And then, then I bought another Strad. Um, and I bought it out of Christie's in London. And it was an instrument that I basically tried in the basement of Christie's for about 10 minutes. And I had a friend who was a very prominent dealer in London, Peter Bidolf. And I said, Pete, would you bid on this instrument for me? And he said, oh, absolutely. And uh, it was very interesting because this is a very, for me, it's a very touching story about violin dealers and violin experts. Apparently, the violin, which was a very famous violin, it was a Stradivari, and it was called the Molitar Stradivari. And it supposedly... Purportedly, it belonged to Napoleon. But it was one of these strats that was in absolutely pristine condition. I mean, it was, there, there was not a single, like, crack of any notice whatsoever on the instrument. And uh, Pete went to the auction, and there were a lot of violin dealers there. Charles Beer was there, and many other dealers from all over. And... My friend, Pete, went around and very casually just mentioned to the specific dealers, including Charles, that Elmar was interested in possibly buying this violin. Well, you know that when the violin came up on the block, the opening bid started, and nobody would give an opening bid, and finally Pete gave an opening bid, which I had said I would go up to a certain amount for. And you know that not one single dealer that was in that auction house bid against Pete. And I thought, wow, <laughs> this is really, this is really something. I mean, you know, it's, it was very touching. It was very touching for me to, to, to know that, to hear it, to know it. And it's, it was just really amazing. So I ended up buying that Strad. Then I had the two Strads. And then finally, at a certain point, I was able to buy this incredibly great Guarneri del Gesù, which is called the Stretton. And it, it's, I mean, it, it's a magnificent instrument, absolutely magnificent. And then I, I, I basically had to sell the two Strads to buy the del Gesù. And and still add money to it. So it was a very expensive instrument, very rare instrument, and I was very lucky to get it. 
Violin maker Roland Feller was born in Switzerland and attended the violin making school in Mittenwald, Germany, before coming to the United States. He worked for several years with the great violin maker and restorer S.F. Sacconi in New York City before moving to San Francisco, where he opened his own shop. A board member of the American Federation of Violin and Bow Makers, he has repaired and restored some of the finest bowed stringed instruments in the world. In 1989, Roland moved his shop to a new location in San Francisco, and here he recalls what happened soon after making that move. When we got the business license, it was kind of funny. We, we looked at the license, it said 7777. So since July 77, we had our shop, and we moved to this location in 1989, right after the earthquake. So I have been here since then. And uh, did the earthquake affect you? Yeah, we were lucky. It didn't. I have had one little jar of varnish that fell off a shelf and made the place smell really good. It was kind of messed to clean up, but it had, had some uh, lavender oil in it, so it smelled really good. But I do remember when it was about 5 o'clock when the earthquake hit, and it's amazing how many thoughts go through your mind in a split second. If you look at my shop, you see a lot of instruments hanging, and they started swinging back and forth. And I thought, now if they start swinging too much, I'm going to jump off the hooks and should I stay here? I happened to be working on a Guarneri violin at the time, and I'm thinking, what do I, maybe I should take the Guarneri violin on my arm and stand in the doorway. But before I do that, I should maybe stop the instruments from swinging. So I held on to one, and of course, they all kind of bumped into each other. Luckily, not very hard. By the time I made it to the doorway, the shaking stopped, thank God. But it was pretty scary. But the thoughts, you know, should I take this fiddle and go hide on my bench or in the doorway or what? A lot of stuff goes through your mind in very little time. Great, San Francisco story. What year again <laughs> was that? That was um, in uh, October of 89. That was the one the that Loma Prieta. took the bridge down. That's the one. Yeah. But I love that you're holding a Guarneri. Yeah, I mean, the timing, I couldn't believe it. Of all times for an earthquake, I'm thinking to myself, you know, I got this Guarneri violin, what do I do? <laughs> Don't want that to get damaged. Oh, man. You know, one thing, if something falls on my head, but if it hits the violin, then that would be really bad. <laughs> Flash forward to the bottom of the fourth inning. Dave Parker barely, by inches, just misses a home run. Candy Maldonado with the hesitation, allowing Jose Canseco to score, and he fails to get Dave Parker at second base, so the Oakland A's take... take well, I don't know if we're on the air or not, and I'm not sure I care at this particular moment, but we are. Well, folks, that's the greatest open in the history of television, bar none. Yes, it certainly did. We're still here. <laughs> we are still, as we can tell, on the air, and I guess you are hearing us, even though we have no picture and no return audio, and we will be back, we hope, from San Francisco in just a moment. 
Galax is a furniture factory town tucked back in the folds of the Verdon Mountains of southwestern Virginia. And every August since 1935, the Moose Club hosts the Old Fiddler's Convention at the fairgrounds at the edge of town. It is a festive affair, and fiddlers and banjo players, guitarists and dulcimer players come in from many states and even other countries to compete in the contests or just stay up all night jamming with their fellow musicians. Paul and I visited Galax while the convention was in full swing, and we found time to sit down with Tom Barr in his fiddle shop on the main street of the town. Tom is well into his 70s, but he still makes violins and provides townsfolk and visitors a place to gather and play music. Here Tom tells a story about bad liquor and a style of old-fashioned wooden cases for violins that were nicknamed coffin cases because they resemble miniature caskets. I had a friend, I got their picture on the wall there, two of them. Uh, they, uh, I, t- I used to teach a lot of people making fiddles now. But this, this man from up Sparta, Floyd Reeves, he, they're just wonderful people. He used to work at the liquor store in Sparta. I went up there and bought a half a gallon of liquor one time. Uh, how I met him, anyhow, I bought this half a gallon of liquor. And uh, anyhow, there's five or six people took a drink out of it. Well, everybody got sick. And I decided there's something wrong with that liquor. So I took about a half a jar of it back up to the liquor store and I, at Sparta. We couldn't buy none in Virginia then. We had to go to Sparta to get it. And I said, you know, it was Floyd. I said, there's something wrong with this liquor. I said, everybody's had a drink. It's got sick. <laughs> I said, would you send this back and see if they uh, analyze it? I said, it's for, you know, see if it's poison. Anyhow, they, he said he would. Well, anyhow, we got talking. And he, he, he said he'd like to learn to make a fiddle. And you know, I, I know he thought I was crazy taking liquor back to the liquor store. <laughs> and I told him where I lived and everything. And, uh, and there's a couple of them up there in Sparta. They wanted to come down to the house. Well, there's three of them, actually. One fellow uh, worked at Dr. Graybull Pipe Company in Sparta back then. It's all gone now, too. But he engraved pipes, smoking pipes, which was real fancy and also and used briar wood. In fact, I made uh, chin rest out of some of that wood they gave me from the factory up there. But anyhow, they come down and learn to make fiddles. And Floyd made a lot of good, he made good fiddles. And uh, two months ago, Floyd passed away. And his uh, daughter called me, his wife. They come down, they said he had been cremated and they're trying to figure out something to put his ashes in. And uh, I want to know what I thought. And I said, well, I got, let me, I told them what I'd do. I, I had an old coffin case made back in the 1800s, just like a new one. I had two, actually. I got one is rosewood and one is ebony-like. So I cleaned that ebony one up, and, uh, and we fixed it to put his ashes in for the uh, services and all. And this is a, it's a coffin case. It's an old coffin case. It's got arch top. It's just like a coffin. Uh, fiddle. Since he was a fiddle maker, I thought, well, now, you know, to me now, that would be appropriate. Now, the reason I saved that rosewood, that's going to be mine. You know, rosewood casket. Well, anyhow, I've got, I've got a rosewood fiddle case made back in the, about 1860 something. It's just like new. Got brass handles. Well, the one I give her was uh, black and all, and real pretty thing. So anyhow, she she wrote. I mean, she come down and called and everything. Talked. That was said. That was the most appropriate thing. Said, and she appreciated. And 
she sent a $50 gift certificate down and I think Stevie took it to the store to get some stuff but anyhow I, I you know you can't charge he was a friend of mine and I thought that's what Floyd would like and see I've got a little uh, pet cemetery I've started up there above the house all my dogs and all as, as they pass away so that's what I'm going to do when something happens to me I'm going to be cremated and, I'm gonna, and that's my rosewood casket and I'm going to be buried with my dogs I hope Becky don't mind <laughs> But anyhow, that's uh, that was uh, that situation where a personalized thing. Now Floyd, the greatest thing he ever done in his life, told me many times was starting to make fiddles. He said it really meant something. And he lived up, and he was still working in fiddles up in his eighties, and that's uh, you know that, that means a whole lot now. I mean, them, them fellows, I tell you what, they're, they're some good people. Yeah. There's a little rosewood casket resting on a marble stand with a packet of old love letters written by my true love's hand. Go and bring them to me, sister. Read them all. For me tonight I have often tried But I could not For the tears that fill my eyes When I'm dead and in my casket When I gently fall asleep Fall asleep to wake High up in the Italian Alps, near the town of Cavalese, there is a special valley that is home to a forest of centuries-old spruce trees that produce tonewood of exceptional quality. Since the Middle Ages, the forest of the Fiemme Valley has been managed by a council made up of local citizens. They are the ones who decide which trees will be cut and when, not officials in faraway Rome, and for this reason, the Fiemme Valley continues to set an inspiring example of sustainable forestry practices for the rest of the world to follow. Piera Cerise's family owns a factory near Cavalese that mills logs from the Fiemme Valley into soundboards for pianos and harps and for the tops of violins, violas, and cellos. Piera gave us a tour of her factory, and then we sat with her in a small park in Cavalese upon ancient stone benches set in a ring around a stone bowl. In medieval times, town officials would sit on the same stone benches and cast their votes by dropping small white and black stones into the bowl. Piera told us stories about her father, who built the factory just after the Second World War, and then she explained why the microclimate of the Fiemme Valley is ideal for growing superior tonewood. She described how violin makers from all over the world come to her factory to select wood for their instruments. 
and how they hold it up to their ear and tap the wood to judge its tone. But not everyone can make that long journey to tap the wood, as we found out in this story. One of the methods to understand or to hear if a piece of wood, a piece of tony wood, is good for making a violin is to knock on it. And in our store, we have all the pieces cut and ready for for making the violin top. I think it was five or five years ago, approximately, um, uh, a Norwegian violin player called uh, and told us that uh, he was very interested in uh, receiving a piece of uh, uh, Stradivari's uh, spruce um, because he wanted to buy a violin by himself. Um, so I take uh, five or six pieces of wood and I knocked on it on them by phone <laughs> and so he decided that this is uh, okay for me. Uh, I, I um, uh, forwarded uh, the, the, the wood, uh, um, the spruce, the maple, everything uh, he needed for making his violin. Then I forgot. Uh, we have several customers, so I forgot. Uh, and uh, one, it was afternoon in winter time. Uh, phone, I am Mr. Uh, oh, how are you? Nice. Uh, and the violin, I made it. And now I want to, to uh, play for you. And he played a serenade for me on phone. And this was really a very, a very important experience for me. And at the same time, um, I felt uh, honored of, of this serenade. I was uh, quite... <laughs> Tyrion. <laughs> yes, Tyrion. <laughs> and um, then, um, speaking with a friend of mine who lives in Norway, who is a piano repairer and piano tuner, very famous also. He told me about this uh, violin player. He was very famous. And then he, when he called me, he was quite older. He couldn't play any more, any concerts anymore. So he retired and made his violin. And uh, a couple of years ago, he died. Uh, it, I remember this experience really with joy on one side and uh, uh, with tears on the other, but uh, unique, I think. Bruce Harvey lives on Orcas Island, one of the San Juan Islands in the state of Washington. For many years, his passion and livelihood has been providing high-quality tonewood to luthiers all over the world. I was amazed how much he knows about trees and the use of different kinds of woods in musical instruments. Here he talks about a particular tree that he came across by happenstance. Are there certain makers you have in mind occasionally when you're looking at? Oh yeah. Um, well, I could tell you. Well, I could tell you a zillion stories, but there's one story. Um, I was making a trip to 
the East Coast, and I was driving back, and I was coming through Iowa, and I stopped at a motel in Iowa City called the Sunset Motel. And I noticed out in front of the office there was a stump, and it was huge. It was four foot in diameter, and it, I could tell right away that it, that it was maple, and I could tell right away that it was heavily figured, and I could tell that it was this bubbly figure that I love in silver maple. And said, wow, I'm glad I wasn't here when that came out or I'd be spending the next few days in in uh, Iowa City. And I went back to my room and there was the tree. You know, it had just been cut down. And I said, oh boy. So uh, it was actually the most strenuous work I've ever done, in, ever. And that's not exaggerating. The, it was about 100 degrees out. The humidity was spectacular. I wasn't used to that humidity and I was in good shape back then and it just just absolutely uh, I took a shower I probably took 20 showers that day and watched several innings of a cub game on television but I wound up getting a substantial amount of that tree and it was this bubbly figure that you see in silver maple you see it in Gibson guitars from the the 30s and 40s oddly enough real bubbly figure and there's one viola maker in England who really wanted some lightweight bubbly wood so basically the lion's share of that tree went his way and and I knew as I was milling it up that that's who it was for so yes uh, sometimes you see very unusual patterns in wood and you think of a specific maker um, bear claw Spruce is a great example. When I first started doing this back in the late 70s, you couldn't give away bear claw in spruce. It's a, it's a genetic figuring that's um, back then was considered to be a defect. Um, kind of hard to describe. The reason it's called bear claw is because on the cambium, it looks like a bear has clawed it. You know, it looks exactly like a bear has sat there and sharpened his claws on the outside of the tree. But it's, it's a genetic figuring that happens... Um, it's pretty rare. Maybe one in 50 trees has bear claw in it. And I love it. And gradually, um, throughout the 80s, bear claw got uh, transformed from being a wood that was considered to be defective into a wood that was sought after. And now it's highly sought after. And there were certain makers that, that helped to do that. Dana Bourgeois comes to mind when he was working with Schoenberg, featured bear claw in all those guitars. A lot of violin makers, you see it a lot, a lot in old um, uh, Cremonese violins, you see bear claw. I think people loved it. It's called maschio in Italian. The belief was that it only occurred in the male trees. I don't know if that's true or not, but it's a very beautiful figuring. And um, there were people, uh, makers who were really looking for high quality bear claw back in the 80s when it was unavailable. And so, yeah, that's another example of when I'd run into a bear claw tree, I'd bring it home. And so now it's, you know, thanks to a lot of woodcutters and a lot of makers, it's turned from a defect, a defect into something it's sought after. For several years, I produced and hosted a public radio series titled The Telling Takes Us Home, a celebration of American family stories. Like the Rosin the Bow Project, I spent a good deal of time traveling around the United States, recording people telling their family stories. 
In 2001, the organizers of the Virginia Festival of the Book invited me to be one of the speakers at the festival's opening event, held on the campus of the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. Also presenting that evening was the folk singer and social activist Pete Seeger and his brother Mike Seeger. Mike plays a variety of folk instruments and was a founding member of the New Lost City Ramblers. And part of the evening's excitement was the fact that the two brothers had not performed on stage together for more than ten years. Sadly, Pete and Mike are both gone now, but the memory of that evening remains fresh in my mind. The highlight for me, in fact, was when Pete urged me to grab my fiddle and join them on stage. Folk singer John McCutcheon, who was in the audience, also joined us, and we played a medley of well-known American fiddle tunes together. The next morning, I sat down with Pete and Mike and interviewed them for several hours. They talked about their family and the stories they heard growing up. Here is a story Pete told that happened when he was very young, and his parents decided to take their cultured music into the backcountry of North Carolina in the 1920s. Well, my father told me this story about a trip with a homemade trailer back in the early 20s. The trip was actually in 19, the winter of uh, 2021. He told my mother, "Why should we just play our good music? That meant Beethoven and Bach and so on. Why should we just play our good music for people in the cities, rich people? Uh, why don't we take our music out to the countryside?" I guess there had been examples of this that Chautauqua tours and so on, but his idea was just to build a trailer and they would head out into the country and see what people thought of their music. <laughs> He spent a whole year building a beautiful uh, one of America's first automobile trailers. They didn't have plywood so much then; it was made of tongue and groove maple with brass screws, had four wheels and hoops, and a canvas roof. It looked a little bit like a fancy covered wagon. And he bought a Model T Ford and had a special low gear put in it so they could pull it up hills. As it was, I think their average speed was twenty or twenty-five miles an hour. He had a six by six platform which could be pushed under the trailer while they were traveling. But when they stopped, it could be pulled out and two jacks put under the outside corners, and there was a little stage for a folding organ. Kind chaplains used in World War One, and、uh, he would sit at the organ, and my mother would、uh, stand and play the violin. That was the plan. They headed south. I think stopped at a few suburban places, gained a little cash, but then they headed down into Virginia, into North Carolina. The roads got worse and worse. Roads were not paved in those days outside cities. The trailer had four solid rubber tires. You can bet it was bumpy when they went over the cobblestones in the cities, or over badly rutted roads. Anyway, one very rainy day, the puddles got、uh, more and more until it seemed like the road was one big puddle. And my mother said, "Charlie, don't you think you ought to turn around?" He said, "I can't turn the trailer around on this one-lane road." And the The map says the town is ahead, so we should go ahead and see if we can get to the town. Chug chug, brrr, going on. If you've ever seen a Model T Ford, you know how small it was. It was quite tall, maybe 
seven feet tall or so, or more. But uh, the engine was a little bit bigger than a portable typewriter. A tiny little thing. And now the fields were filling up with water. As it, it looked like it was a real flood coming on. The, the water got over the tires. It came up to the hubcaps. And uh, as my father told me the story, at age four, around 1923, uh, I was just enthralled with the excitement. What was going to happen? And my mother was getting hysterical. She says, I can, Charlie, I can carry Peter. Can you carry the two boys? We're all going to get drowned. And he said, it, it can't get any deeper than this. Uh, I'm sure he was getting worried, though, especially when sheep were swimming in the fields. My mother says, how do you even know there's a road? He says, well, I can see the tops of the fence posts on either side, so I know there must be a road halfway between. And on they went, chug, chug, brrr, water getting deeper and deeper. Finally, they saw in the distance some trees through the driving rain, and sure enough, the water went down, down below the hubcaps, down below the tires, and finally they were on dry ground again. And that night they parked along the highway and, and camped. They had a little, a little Coleman gas stove and uh, cooked supper, went to sleep. In the morning, six farmers were around the trailer with guns. We don't want no gypsies around here. We're not gypsies, says my father in his Harvard accent. Uh, we're musicians. You're what? I suppose maybe they brought out my mother's violin and she might have played a little on it. And my father said, actually, we're looking for a place we can spend the winter. The road's so bad, I don't think we can get back north again. Uh, and one of the farmers says, well, I got a wood lot in the back of my house. If you want to camp out there, you're welcome. So they spent uh, the next four months or so in the Mackenzie's woodlot in Pinehurst, North Carolina. And I'd often wondered if the Mackenzie family was still there, but I, my travels never took me to Pinehurst. But two years ago, I'm singing in Chapel Hill and two middle-aged women coming up say, are you any relation to the Seeger family that spent the winter with the Mackenzies in 1920? I said, good Lord, are you from that family? He said, yes. My grandmother never stopped talking about that family from New York that spent the winter with them. While visiting New York City after our trip to Italy, Paul and I drove up the beautiful Hudson River Valley to the Ashokan Center, where fiddler Jay Unger and his wife Molly Mason host a series of music and dance camps each summer. Jay is a gifted musician and composer, whose waltz, Ashokan Farewell, was used by filmmaker Ken Burns as the theme for his award-winning documentary on the Civil War. Here Jay tells why he wrote the waltz and how it later helped save the very center for which it was named. This has been an environmental education center since 67. Five or 6,000 school children come here every year, live here for a few days. Some of them are exposed to nature for the first time in their lives. I came here in 1980 looking for a place to run a music and dance camp. And uh, this became the home. And uh, the first camp was Labor Day weekend, 1980. And it was a mixture of music, 
there was Southern Appalachian old-time music, we called it at the time, it's still called that, and New England music. Some friends for, who played at contra dances uh, came and taught, and then the dancing that goes with those two uh, types of music. And we did that for several years. The third year was 1982. And um, I guess I had noticed in 81 that the northern fiddlers and the southern fiddlers, when it was jam time, were at opposite ends of a building or even opposite ends of the property. So I decided to try a different idea in 1982 and have two separate camps. They were week-long, and we called one of them Northern Week and the other Southern Week. And uh, Northern Week was New England, Swedish, Norwegian. I think we had French-Canadian as well. And uh, Southern Week had Southern Appalachian old-time music and Cajun music. So these two uh, camps did really well, and they focused, and people bonded, and there was an amazing sense of community. And at the end of that summer in 82, I was home and having a deep sense of loss and longing. The people, the place, the music, it was, I'd been floating on a cloud of utopian euphoria, you know, and many people have experienced this kind of thing. And I came down to earth, and it was a little sad. And uh, I picked up the fiddle, and I started to just play my heart. And that's the moment that I wrote Ashokan Farewell. And the, what, what happened many years later, in 1990, when it was used as the main theme for Ken Burns' series, The Civil War, something clicked in my head, and I said, wait a minute. That was born out of the year that we gave birth to Northern Week and Southern Week. It just seemed an amazing coincidence that it was now, in many people's minds, connected with the Civil War. So how did uh, Ken Burns hear about your tune? I guess it was around 1980. I was playing uh, triple fiddles with Evan Stover and Matt Glazer, and we decided to form this band called Fiddle Fever. And that's when I contacted Molly Mason, bass player in... Uh, Garrison Keillor's Prairie Home Companion Powder Milk Biscuit Band and invited her to come join Fiddle Fever as the bass player. And I was really lucky. She said yes. <laughs> so uh, we recorded um, A Shock and Farewell in 1984 on our second LP. And it was a total accident. It was a new tune um, for us. Um, you know, I had been incubating it, I guess, but I hadn't ever played it in public yet. And we were having problems with one of the slow tunes on the album. We had everything recorded, mixed, ready to go, except this one tune we could not get a good take of. It was a slow tune. And uh, Russ Berenberg, the guitarist, said, let's try that new waltz of yours, which didn't have a name yet. And within 30 minutes, we Evan Stover sat and wrote out uh, an accompanying violin and viola part, Molly and Russ and I recorded the lead violin, bass, and guitar parts, and Evan went in and overdubbed those other two parts, and it was magic. It was done, and it just felt perfect. 
It just was an amazing experience. So the record came out, I think that was actually 83. The record came out in 1984, and Russ uh, and Matt Glazer were working with Ken Burns, a young, relatively unknown filmmaker, on Ken's second film called The Brooklyn Bridge. And they brought him the LP. And apparently, as soon as he heard that tune, I got a phone call. And he just fell in love with that tune. It must have struck him very deeply and emotionally. And Molly and I and other members of the band started working on some of his films. And then in 1990, that recording of Ashokan Farewell and many others that we did uh, were heard as this continual theme throughout the 11 and a half hour series called The Civil War. And then uh, how did the tune play a, a significant role in helping keep this Ashokan Center going? Well, in at some point after 2000, Molly and I had been asked to perform music at Gettysburg on Remembrance Day, November 19th, which is the anniversary of the Gettysburg Address. So we're on Cemetery Hill on a platform where Lincoln gave the address. A Lincoln reenactor gave the address. And each year they would have generally uh, an author or a politician who was a Civil War buff interested in the subject and the period speak. So this one year... Governor Pataki, governor of New York, spoke. And uh, although Ashokan Farewell has no historic connection to the Civil War, the historians who brought us there wanted to hear it. So we played it on that occasion. And uh, the governor came to us afterward with a tear in his eye and and said how much he loved that tune. Um, A few years later, in 2006, the Ashokan Field Campus, where we had been running these music and dance camps since 1980, uh, came up for sale. It had been owned by the State University of New York all this time, and they decided to sell it. And the 385-acre nature preserve and the uh, long-standing environmental ed programs that had been visited by schools since the 1960s and our music and dance camps were about to come to a close. Uh, So one day, um, I decided I had to give it a try, see if we could save the place. I wrote a letter to Governor Pataki, didn't know if he'd even see it. And I mentioned the day we met and how much he had loved this tune. And I said, the place that inspired that piece of music is about to be sold by the state of New York. And we want a chance some time to try to put a coalition together and save it, keep it from being developed, preserve it, and keep the programs going. And within 48 hours, I heard from his office, and he was very helpful, very instrumental in helping us get the time we needed to pull it together. And then people who loved the place became contributors, the Open Space Institute, the Catskill Watershed Corporation, and the New York City Department of Environmental Protection all came together. We formed the Ashokan Foundation. The property was purchased, and here we are today, and it's still going. Everything is happening in in new and different ways, but a continuation of the traditions that have been here for many years.
Thank you for listening to Rosin the Bow, an audio journey through the world of the violin family. Rosin the Bow is produced by Joe and Paula McHugh in the studios of the Raven Radio Theater. Our theme music was arranged and performed by the string quartet, The Fretless. For more information about the Rosin the Bow project and to listen to additional podcasts, please visit our website, rosinthebow.org. <laughs>